Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hi, Glenn. So this is an episode we're going to cut over here in a few minutes to a recording we did in the auditorium at the California State Division of the IAI Conference, uh, where we did a panel discussion with Tom Busey. But before we cut over there, we've got our own intro stuff to take care of. So don't forget to, if you want to help us out, contribute to the podcast on patreon.com. Head over to patreon.com slash podcast. And Glenn, I think you have a game lined up for us. I do. I have another where in the world. And uh, Eric, I have some questions for you. I think, right. I think you're going to get this one. But yeah, here we go. So this particular country invented the corporation. In fact, one of the first publicly traded companies existed in this country. Hmm, okay. I know, that, that's, a, that's an oddball one. I just thought that was interesting. This one I can, I, 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 can, I can vouch for. On average, they are the tallest nation in the world. They, the average person from this country is six feet tall. Ah, uh, my people. Okay. Here we go. Mm, yeah, there we go. And yeah, you, you fit that mold. Half of the country is one meter above sea level or lower. And the world's largest robot is in this country. I didn't know that. And then finally, and what they're most known for, tulip exports. Well, okay. So then it's, it's got to be the Netherlands then. Yes. Okay. But, but it is your people. I mean, there's definitely Scandinavian-ish, German Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, for, for, uh, I thought, I thought the, the tallest people were a little bit further north, up to Sweden kind of, um, uh, area. Yeah, they're but, in there. But uh, the robots, so now I'm, I'm curious what, cause I've seen a, I think it was Dutch robot called Strandbeest. That is a, like a strand is like the sand, the edge of the ocean. It's this mm -hmm. like giant crab looking thing that, that uh, slowly walks down the beach. It's, uh, it's. Yeah, look up Strandbeast. It is a very interesting looking thing. I can only imagine taking a little siesta under an umbrella and all of a sudden see this thing walking towards you. Yeah, no, the, the, the robot that apparently is the largest is, oh boy, I'm gonna, gonna murder this. Maslantkering. <laughs> Maslantkering? The Maslant Barrier. It's like a storm surge barrier okay. in southern Holland. And it responds to various levels. And basically it's kind of like a, it looks like it's like a damning kind of device, but it's considered a robot or uh, as they say in New Jersey, robot. All right. So this episode, we're, we're playing audio that we recorded at the conference in San Diego. So the short little story, it was like on the first day after setting up the Idemia booth, which is kind of one of the reasons I was there. Convince the other, my coworkers, hey, let's, let's go across the way from the bay side where the hotel is to the ocean side. There's a little shack restaurant called Taco del Gordo, which I'd been to there for like bigger restaurants years ago and loved it. So let's head over there and get lunch there. So order the, some, some tacos, stand and waiting for the, the order to get cooked up. And then all of a sudden a. So California has this reputation for crazy people, weird, weird things happen in California. No, I, would, no one, I would agree. That is definitely California. But no one ever says, keep 
Southern California weird because there's no danger of it ever not being weird, right? So right. They, they say that about Austin and Portland because it might be gentrified at some point. Never going to happen in Southern California. So this guy in a wetsuit comes out of the ocean, walks right up to me and gives me a hug. And I was like, for a moment of what the hell is going on? And so it, after just a moment of trying to make my brain not be broken and realize it was Glenn Langenberg. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I, so how did, did you see me? Like, how did you end up just random? I didn't even know you were there yet. How did you see me on the beach? Right. Yeah. So I got in, in a, I got in a couple of days earlier than the rest of the conference. And I had on my bucket list, I wanted to learn how to surf. So I, I tried surfing lessons once before and I had real difficulty getting up and I, <laughs> I uh, had decided to take some more lessons. And so, in fact, I think that was probably my third day of lessons when I saw you and probably my last day because I was exhausted. But yeah. I, I finally got up. I was finally able to surf. They were, I mean, small waves in the surf, but I was able to finally learn how to stand in position and kind of ride a wave down the line. It was, oh, it was so much fun. It was great. And I, I was just, but each day I had less and less energy because from the previous day, I had no idea how taxing it is on your upper body strength. Mm -hmm. I, I would have assumed it was your legs kneeling and, and, but no, oh, it's, it's really not, work. I mean, not, not at my level. It's, it's more upper body. And boy, when I was done and I was kind of walking back, I saw you, well, that, technically that's not true. I was actually looking for food. Mm. And I was looking in there and then I saw like people who were well-dressed and I went, well, that's, and then as I started looking through the rest, I went, oh, look, look at that really tall, bushy head there, that Napoleon <laughs> Dynamite looking guy. I think I know him. So yeah, then I came running up to you in my wetsuit and still kind of wet. I had just finished giving like two lectures and, and uh, so yes, all, all the suit and tie and our group didn't kind of align with the rest of the, the the beach people out there, but it was kind of quiet for a Monday afternoon. Now that, that moment of you trying to figure out your brain, not quite processing is a <laughs> yeah. giant seal attacking me from the ocean. Who, what, what is going, I mean, going on. It's just, it was that great moment of where the brain just can't, can't put context into anything yet. Yeah, plus so was... I was wearing a cap too. So I had like a oh, little yeah, yeah. cap and yep. I was, I, there was just one portion of my face in this black wetsuit. So. And so then after it finally clicked, the brain reacts weirdly. I just couldn't stop laughing after I figured out what was going on. But anyway, that was just quick, quick, funny story from San Diego. Great to see everybody out there and fantastic conference. Well, welcome everybody to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I got to start it off the way we usually start it off, right? I'm Eric Ray. I'm Glenn Langenberg. So thank you so much, California Division of the IAI, for asking us to come. It's been a few years now since we've done a, a live session of the, the podcast at one of these conferences. It has. And, and, but I really enjoy them because it's an opportunity to just do a podcast. Which right. We need those opportunities. And <laughs> yes. then there's some people in the room that can listen. We get a little bit of feedback if that was funny or not. Well, I mean, I'm just... I, I think I'm just going to stick with the same dad jokes as usual and just sure. assume that everyone thinks they're funny. But so for this session, we've invited on to, to talk through a, a paper that is actually going to go through in more detail this afternoon after lunch. Tom Busey, welcome Tom back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So thanks again for, for coming on. And 
And well, also for indulging me in a little Q&A session before we actually got up here on the panel, kind of going through some of the, the details on your paper that we're going to cover. But so before we get into all that, why don't you introduce yourself to the crowd, how you got into this fingerprint field, what you've been working on here recently, and then we'll eventually get into the, the paper here at hand. Sure. Sounds good. So my name is Tom Busey. I'm a professor of psychological, psychological and brain sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, also associated with the program in neuroscience and the program in cognitive science. And... I got my start in forensics over 20 years ago, actually. I had been working in graduate school in the University of Washington, looking at issues related to eyewitness testimony and answering little really interesting questions like if you're mugged in a dark alley and then the cops do a lineup and the, the, the lineup, of course, has really bright lights. What is the effect of changing the illumination between that dark alley and the bright lineup? And it turns out that it was pretty remarkable that people, the increase in brightness actually hurt performance because you're changing things, but increasing the lights actually made people more confident. So this is sort of a double whammy that, that something the police would do that would seem so natural. Why would you do the lineup in the dark? I mean, that seems like a defense attorney's dream could simultaneously hurt performance and improve and increase confidence inappropriately. So that was my start. And... This was back when I was, I think, still an assistant professor. I forget when exactly I was promoted. But back in the day, my colleague and longtime collaborator, John Vanderkolk, who is a graduate of Indiana University, he wrote a letter to the department asking if someone could help us, help us meaning the community, because this was in the age of Dalbert that I've, you'll know the history more than I do. But basically, the judge was starting to throw out fingerprint testimonies to show it to the jury. And he wanted support for how, how we could document the expertise that examiners had. So how could we support the field? And I made him promise two things. I made him promise that we would always follow the science, okay. that we would be supportive when it was appropriate, but we would always follow the science. And that sometimes that would mean making people uncomfortable. So we're, we're going to see some evidence of that today, I think. But we did some experiments. Alice White came out from Las Vegas and had her head examined with the EEG, <laughs> published that paper in 2005 that, that looked at the, the role of holistic processing in fingerprint examiners, really suggesting that they take their expertise with faces and can apply it to fingerprints, but only if the fingerprints are oriented correctly, upright. And that became a series of a couple of dozen articles, three NIJ grants, working on really fun projects, Melissa Taylor's fingerprint working group. And then now I'm part of her DNA working group that's literally finishing up. I would be on an all-day conference call today if I wasn't here <laughs> dealing with that. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I felt good. I spent all two weeks ago in Kansas City for a week. Yeah, they tend to work through dinners. It's, it's a hard group. So. <laughs> yeah, so that got me here today. And that's been actually a very fruitful project for me because I've been able to take a lot of the work from DNA and, and think about how it might apply to fingerprints. And that was actually the, the reason that I was able to develop the model that we'll talk about today and I'll talk about this afternoon. Just uh, before we get into a couple of the other things, I've got one thing for the audience. Would you be willing to share with them your 
love of magic. <laughs> so Glenn and I talk a lot about magic and I am purely a spectator. I just love to think about magic. I developed a cognitive psychology course during COVID that was entirely online. An entire week of that is devoted to stage magic. Shim Lin, am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Shim Lin is the centerpiece of that unit. But the reason I think it's so interesting and the reason I love talking with Lynn about it is that the all of perception is constructed. All of perception, there is no ground truth VCR recording or DVR, whatever. All of perception is constructed. And magic is a special case of understanding the failures of that, that the, the magician is essentially, or the illusionist is essentially taking advantage of yes. the particular flaws in the interpretation system to either misdirect your attention or, yeah. So I see a close correspondence between the job that you guys are doing of interpreting evidence and the magician, because we're all trying to understand the flaws in human behavior and the magician simply exploits them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the things that I would, and I've, I've said this before to you and I'm saying it again, I would really love to stop doing fingerprint research and just do magic research. <laughs> like yeah. I, I could go down that rabbit hole for the next couple of decades. So if, if, you're, if you get sick and bored of forensic <laughs> science, man, that's what we got to do. That, that area is rife for research. Yep. Okay. So one of the things, the uh, research paths that you've also taken here over the past five, 10 years, maybe is the eye tracking. Uh-huh. So can you talk a little about what set you on that path to using that technique to measure fingerprint examiner performance and, and ability? And maybe some of the highlights that have come out of that research. Yeah. So one of my, I have many regrets. And one of my biggest regrets recently is that the eye tracking project that we did with Noblis and FBI that paper came out during COVID. And because of all of that, the basically national crisis that we had going at the time, that paper, which was published in Plus One, didn't get, I think, the attention that it deserves. And for two reasons. One is that I think it helps us understand the role of of two particular mechanisms. One is cursory comparisons, where people are um, inappropriately excluding based on a comparison that isn't long enough, so less than 20 seconds. I get that this is a hard problem. You're you're not just doing two comparisons. You're often doing a many-to-one and, and sifting through an APHIS page or whatever. So I get that there is, that's going to happen. But cursory comparisons are one of the causes of mislocalization or, or of erroneous exclusions. The other one was mislocalizations where people are, are not finding the appropriate starting point and are or not rotating it properly. And so that paper really focused on those two particular mechanisms. But the main reason you should go read that paper in PLOS One, and you can download it for free because it's an open access journal, is that there's an example of an active, well, I don't know how much I can talk about, but this this person said that they were a latent print examiner and they made four, maybe six? Maybe, maybe more. Yeah, I could it, I had five in my head, but it might yeah. have been six. Of, of just straight up erroneous identifications on images that even a novice like me would look at and say, what are you talking about? Like, what is going on here? And we have multiple layers of documentation. So we know that this was not a clerical error because the the subject verbally provided their response and it was verified by the who repeated it back to them. 
And so there are multiple reasons for me to believe this was not an accident. And so I think that this, or, or a clerical error, I think this is an example that the field needs to confront that there are people who are working in the community who should not be. And the eye tracking really demonstrates that they looked at that comparison for multiple minutes, yeah. five, because it records the time in which you're spending because we track the eyes for a certain amount of time. And it really illustrates how they were trying to find correspondence. They were trying to do the task. They were on all intents and purposes, just like you doing this task and coming up with a completely nonsensical response. So one of the things that I share with students when I'm teaching is about training. And here's a really good example of this, where many of us looking around the room, I recognize some of you, Jeff, you're Jeff over there, Jeff Graham. Hi, Jeff Graham. <laughs> Probably in the same boat as me and a few others here, where our training was, here's a stack of latent prints on lift cards. Here's a stack of knowns. I'll go sit down, compare them, and don't make any mistakes. It's a very black box approach. Just make sure your conclusions are appropriate, right? So just don't get any wrong, right? What we have found is while that has built, of course, a good calibration for these decisions, you're not getting in and seeing what the examiner is really looking at. And you don't, and what I have now found is that really good training tries to simulate the eye tracking aspect yep. is that you look at what someone is looking at. You make them mark it. You make them either verbalize it or trace ridges, do an Alice White kind of ridge tracing, because then you can begin to see how they're interpreting ridge detail. It's not obviously as sophisticated is, is eye tracking technology, but at least it's a way to get in there. And I think training today has improved in that way because it's it's less about just getting the right decision, but looking at the process and the data that examiners are using to get to that conclusion. And I'm gonna assume that the, the stack of cards that you were given, there was a match for each latent somewhere in the stack of cards. Not all of <laughs> Mostly, mostly, yeah. mostly. Which then you don't get the training on how to do the exclusion. No, good point. Good point. I'm always going to take it back to exclusion. Of course. That's, that's your thing. Yeah. All right. So this is the part of the show that you guys don't usually get to hear. Right. It's the part that I like, I go in and edit out or Glenn, I taught him how to do this now, edit out where we kind of figure out what we're going to do next and then cut it out so you don't hear it. So this is a little behind the scenes thing. Are there any other intro or lead up questions you wanted to talk to Tom about before we get into the paper at hand? We could see if the audience has any questions. That's a great time. point. I mean, we can do that too. So any other questions that you guys have for Tom? Yeah. So I'll repeat the question yeah, real thanks. quick so that people online and, and our actual podcast can get it. The person that made all those errors in the eye tracking study, is that person still active in the field? You know, the funny thing about me when I talk about this, and I haven't it happened during COVID and some people knew about it before COVID and I when I was going to conferences and especially people who are who were subjects in that study. When I start talking about this person, they begin to get worried that it was them. But one of the challenges of working with the FBI is that they have so many lawyers and so many constraints. Even talking about that project, you know, I have to get permission to talk to give a talk from the FBI lawyers. So not just the fact that the FBI has lots of lawyers, but there are a number of confidentiality things that get signed and stuff. So that's not an answerable question from my perspective. You know, I think that the field should assume that there are multiple versions of this person in the field. And then the question really is, what's in your SOPs? 
what's in your structure of your laboratory that allows you to detect that, that situation? Yeah. So it, it's a very fair question. I believe Eric and I, we did a paper, or we did a, an episode on this paper. I'm almost positive we did. Yes, I'm almost positive we did as well. After 250 some odd episodes, it's, it's for sure. Remember, <laughs> but I think we did. I think the reason I'm hesitating is because I've also taken screenshots from that paper and included it in presentations I give on erroneous exclusions because there's a whole bunch of great data in there. So it's like, am I remembering doing that or actually talking to you about it? Sure. Anyway. But to, to Tom's point, and as someone who does a lot of training, I'm sure Eric can probably chime in with, with his viewpoint. I do see those examiners in the field. And there's a couple of things that I, I can tell you. Just I don't know who the examiner is that he's talking about, but here's here's what my Glenn's best guess of what that examiner is. Probably working alone or with one other person for a small agency, usually a small police department, very little support, very little training, got thrown into the job, definitely not accredited, definitely not documenting their exams, and possibly not even doing verifications. That's usually who that person is. I, I run into them in my, in my courses when they decide that they finally want to look into certification so they have to start taking courses for credits and they are just not prepared at all. So I think the, so how many participants were there in that? Uh, 123? Right, so you got 123 people. There are thousands of latent examiners across the country. The, the odds of this, the one problem child being in that study out of everybody, probably pretty low, like Clarence is suggesting, there's probably more. So the important thing isn't figuring out who that person was, but how to detect that person in the agency that you work for so that bad ideas aren't going out and, uh, and affecting the criminal justice system overall. Yeah. And yeah. I do want to point out that I, I, I do not want to be flip about answering that question. I did have a conversation with FBI about my sort of ethical obligations because I know something about this person what are my, should I be a whistleblower? Like, what, what are my ethical obligations here? And she said, you cannot, this is the FBI talking, you cannot say anything. You absolutely cannot say anything. So that was just something I had to struggle with. And, and I appreciate that all of you have to struggle with the colleagues who are may, potentially not. Well, it's, it's part of the, the whole uh, you know, doing research on human subjects, yeah. right? It's the, yep. That person, along with everybody else that signed up, I think I did it too at one of the conferences. So heck, who knows, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but everyone has to, to sign a form. And in that form is not just signing away, yeah, I'll do this. But I understand that you're not going to release any information that might affect my career or livelihood, et cetera. So that the person agrees to participate under those conditions. And so now that's what we have to uh, to follow. Sure. Yep. And we will not even release information that would put that person in a group of five people. Right. So it really limits what can be released. Yeah. Okay, there's a question over here. So let me restate the question again. Did the did the research include samples that were from like APHIS candidate lists? And just to clarify, do you mean was your question about like close non-matches being in the comparison set? So it, it was, it's again, also then more setting up the study, more kind of like an APHIS candidate list where you've got your latent and you're going through multiple possible candidates to the same latent print. I don't think the study was set up that way. 
Yeah, so every time I talk with Alice White, she complains that my studies are always <laughs> one image to one image, and that's not how you work. And I get that. So maybe we'll have to do that study. So your question is a really deep question because, and we were talking about this earlier, because really black box studies are designed to somehow mimic casework, which is impossible task. You know, my colleagues at U.S. Secret Service, almost everything they do is on paper. If you're doing the, what idea or whatever, the, the bomb stuff, everything is on blown up pieces of metal. So different people work in different domains. They have different processing techniques. So you, you try to, I guess, kindness simulate casework. But the same thing is true with DNA. So you have to ask, is my reference database of allele frequencies coming from an Asian population, a Caucasian population? The, the likely ratio you get will depend on the, the reference database that you use. So this problem is not unique to fingerprints. Anytime you, you want to create a reference database, you have to ask, how am I simulating what I think is a relevant population right. there? Yeah. Also, uh, Cindy, to your question, there's a different cognitive psychologist out there uh, by name of E.T.L. Drawer, who did a paper that's somewhat similar to what you're asking, where he took a number of examiners who didn't know they were being tested, and the researchers were able to present in basically in an APHIS system. The examiners thought they were using an APHIS environment, and they were able to change the position of various candidates. So they could put them at the top, in the middle, at the bottom, and even change the scores. They could manipulate the candidate lists. And they were able to put a number of close non-matches, non-matches at the top and bottom and middle. And they found that when they put them toward the top of the list with the higher score, they were able to increase the number of erroneous identifications. So I would check that paper out, Journal of Forensic Science, maybe 2011. I thought maybe earlier than that. No, it could um, be. Oh, you're right. It, it, yeah. But, uh... Here we go again with our dates. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's somewhere in the, yeah, somewhere, yeah, I think Eric's right, probably 2008 or 2007, but Journal of Forensic Science, Detail Drawer, Casey Wartime, and Jeff Willitis, I think. I don't remember the third name. I remember Etl and Casey. Yeah, okay. The, then the flip side of that is if you, if you had the correct matching candidate and you move them down the list, yeah. you're much more likely to miss it. So now working for an APHIS company, yeah. I sometimes hear questions from, from agencies saying, hey, can we hide the score? And I said, well, yeah, we can hide the score, but you're going to miss more latents. You're going to make fewer IDENTs because you hit the score. Having the score there is a biasing effect, but it all it biases you towards making an accurate ID. It's a prompt almost. Yeah. I mean, and, and I would also call with it the, with the random order of the list. I would call it a base rate bias because over time you become, you, you develop an expectancy when you see high scores and a big differential from the top score to the lower scores, there's a sense that there's likely going to be an identification there. So over time, you, you develop an expectation of it. So it's a bias, but it's one that we take advantage of. It helps focus our attention. But as Tom was noticing in some of his research, is that they were seeing that some of the participants were not spending appropriate amounts of time. They were skimming over. And again, it could have been either where they started or whatever clues, whatever heuristics they, they use to speed up that process can also work against us, and which is known psychological phenomenon. People spend less time at candidate number 10 than they do at candidate number one, but maybe they should spend less time at candidate number 10 than candidate number one. Depending on APHIS system. <laughs> True. So anyway, any other questions? For, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, that was just the, the, the one person that made four, five, six erroneous identifications. An outlier. Yeah. Okay, and the second one is too. Is the eye tracking technology something that could be utilized by agencies at some point in the future, a system to buy that latent units can use? Yeah, I've had extensive conversations with Melissa Taylor at NIST about that because one of the things that NIST does is it, it basically tries to find which products are appropriate for different settings. And maybe it's that when you, so the answer to the question is absolutely yes. And I think that it's conditioned on the fact that maybe after a decade or so of working in that technology, you've gotten what you've gotten out of it. And so I don't currently have any plans to do any eye tracking studies. And part of the reason is, and if you take my workshop this tomorrow morning on the user's guide to the brain, I'll talk a little bit about this, but Basically, we know where the eyes point when we use an eye tracker, more or less. There's some error in the estimation of the eye tracker. We don't always know what information is being extracted at the location, if anything. So just because you point your eyes at a particular location doesn't mean you've recognized what's there. So seeing- My ex-wife used to complain about that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So it's definitely data. It's definitely useful data. It certainly helps us understand the severity of that one anomalies examiner it and it now eye tracking systems are being built into laptops so i think the flip side of that is and maybe for an agency it might be good but i think one of the challenges for amazon delivery drivers is that there's somebody's always watching (laughs) they've got the gps in the car and it must be frustrating to know that you're always being tracked i was wondering if my uber driver yesterday if if Uber cared that he was speeding, because <laughs> Uber for sure knows he's speeding, they may not care that he's speeding. But so if you're doing casework, would you want to be watched all of the time? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not an examiner. Might be from from the last perspective. If you're a supervisor and you think somebody is not doing their job, then absolutely you want to track every eye eye movement that that person makes. But I don't know. This we live in a we're humans, so. We have to balance that from, I know you give up expectations of privacy when you come to work, but does that include exactly where your eyes point all of the time? I don't know. Yeah, I think there'd be some challenges to overcome there. The getting interrupted in the middle of the comparison and then resuming it, or I'm not sure how how many of you all compare like I do, but where I kind of start to tilt and, <laughs> and kind of go kind of bob and weave and in and out, like I'm boxing with the, with the latent, but I, I've definitely seen other people looking at like APHIS screens also moving their head around and definitely didn't line up with the eye tracking experience where you had to have your chin on a, on a thing and, right. and very well like locked in. That was a, a challenge for, for me in doing the comparisons of not being able to bob well, yeah, wave. That's a good point. Can you describe what that looks like? Because I mean, I, I think they're probably getting sort of minority report futuristic <laughs> yeah. that you, that it, or like was the show Black Mirror, maybe explain what the eye tracking device looks like in practice. Yeah, so basically the the structure of your visual system is such that there's a small region. If you hold your arms out, go ahead and hold your arms out. Hold your arms out here. The width of two thumbnails is about the region of highest acuity. Everything else around it is not blurry. It's called the periphery, but everything around it is less well represented. It's not like you take your glasses off and things are blurry. But it means that you, for small objects like minutia, literally in the name, minutia, <laughs> you do have to 
move those into central fixation and that requires eye movements. And so if you're driving, you tend to only look in one place, but you can still see when the deer runs in court, towards you because you've got peripheral vision. But by and large, for small features, you have to move your eyes around. And so the thinking behind eye movements is that if we track the location of the eye, and we can do that by putting a camera close to your eye and measuring the location of your pupil relative to your head, and then we have another camera that tracks the location of your head relative to the world, we can align those two relatively easily, and we can then know where your eye is relative to the world. And eye trackers now are, you know, you can buy a really reasonable eye tracker for 500 bucks. In fact, I, I have one at home that I was going to use this summer. So <laughs> you, you can, yeah, they're super inexpensive now. They're, you can build them. I built like three or four different versions of them. They're super easy to do. So yeah, if you want to play with eye trackers and you have an extra 500 bucks in the labs, slush fund, you can get one of these. Pupil eye trackers are great. They're open source. Yeah, they're great. The person who had that question, Heather, but she just wanted to clarify that she was talking about buying that. For training oh, absolutely. Yeah. Training, I think, would be wonderful for all the reasons that were described here. All right. So we're going to move into talking about Tom's paper, the most recent one. And it was in 2023. It's in Forensic Science International. And it was published by Tom Busey and Meredith Kuhn. Is Meredith here? So she is not here. She is back in Baltimore. She'll be joining us over Zoom this afternoon. She may be on this call too. I don't oh, know, okay. All right. You well, are. Hi, Meredith. Thank, thank you, Meredith. <laughs> All right. And the title of the paper is Not All Identification Conclusions Are Equal, Quantifying the Strength of Fingerprint Decisions. And you have a comment about that? Yeah. So for those of you online, you can't see the audience, but they're, they've managed to sit as far away from us as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe that's not an accident because I'm going to say some pretty controversial things. And we tried to write the title of this paper in a way that it would draw in our audience as opposed to make them making them recoil in aversion to this idea. So the first part was really something we felt examiners could agree with, which was not all identifications are created equal. And you know this. I mean, that, that, that's a daily. Some of them are, yeah, obvious, lights out, go home. Other ones you agonize over. So that's a very non-controversial statement. And then the second part of the title was helping us understand that there is a process by which we can calibrate the language that we use and maybe, and this is a controversial part, maybe while you're sitting so far away, maybe stop making decisions. So I love that you said that. I didn't, I had no idea you were going to, because the next couple of things I have are, are parts, little quotes from your introductions or why this tool might be helpful. And you've set things up really nicely because they might be at, asking the question, well, what's the alternative? I mean, that's my job is to make decisions or conclusions is there a difference between conclusions, decisions? And that's what I've kind of taken here, a bunch of different little things that are going to go towards that and set that up. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read a few of these quotes and kind of get your hot take on a few of them, see if they have some questions, and we can go from there. And th this is sort of all setting up before we get to the method or even the results of the paper, why this tool or this approach might be helpful or what, what value might it have. All right. So one of the, the first sentences that caught me caught my interest. Because the pattern comparison disciplines lack a current procedure to calculate a likelihood ratio measure, there's no direct estimate of the overall strength of the evidence, which introduces the risk of examiners 
overstating or understating the strength of forensic evidence when they use verbal statements that communicate the strength of the evidence. In other words, if they go into the courtroom and say, it's an identification, they may be in some way over-expressing the strength of that evidence, whatever weight is being assigned to identification. So what are your thoughts behind that? And is, is that an issue that, what are we doing when we are giving those sorts of conclusions? Is that an appropriate human endeavor? And what is it that the brain and the examiner are doing? <clears throat> so we were chatting earlier before the podcast about Star Trek, the, the movies. <laughs> and one of the central features of all of the original movies and maybe the new series, but certainly the original ones was this, the Spock mind meld. This idea that Spock could put his hands on your face and somehow my, mind your meld or meld your mind and, <laughs> and 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 you would get away from all of the barriers of language so so language is a filter there's a great line in one of the mcu movies by thor i believe that that all words are made up um, that's a made-up word all words are made up and that's exactly right all words are made up they're a shared consensus of belief and we think of dictionaries as static but dictionaries are always being redefined because language changes and, and the meanings of words, words are defined relative to the context that they share. So the, one of the hardest things of learning a new language is idiom because idiom is a, a social construct. This, this word is, is appropriate or inappropriate. It's, it's funny when you have speakers of different language who come speak English and they misuse profanity. Yes. And, and and so that's sort of a shared understanding of what words mean and, and when they're appropriate. So I would love to be able to do a mind meld to have you transmit your observations directly to the jury. Instead, what has to happen is that you create some strength of support estimate inside your head, or maybe it is you make a decision and ask how likely you are to be wrong or maybe you accumulate evidence and see if it exceeds some threshold. There's some process by which you accumulate evidence. And if I had a, a Spock mind meld or a magic electrode I can poke in your brain and measure that directly, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But instead, you translate those observations into currently a decision, but there's some output that's a, a synthesis of all of those observations. You distill it down to a single word, Maybe we have some definition that we, we agree on that maybe the end user has to understand. So that's the first barrier to communication is, is translating it into a decision, like identification. And then the second step is communicating that to the end user, the jury, or usually the more likely the prosecutor, because most cases are played out. And they have to understand what's meant. So we could define identification meaning something other than the traditional definition in the dictionary. We have to ensure that the end user also understands that word. And it's worth going through, and maybe you guys can help me, the, the history of the terms that have been used. So when I first started 20 years ago, there was identification. There's a brief flirtation with individualization. We went back to identification. Then there's now association. Association, but now... Source identification. Source identification. Um, I can share my thoughts on all of these, but <laughs> I do want to point out that there we've struggled to come up with a term that ex that appropriately expresses our observations, and this paper is designed to move beyond that. 
to say, we're going to come up with a number. The number is going to speak for itself. And oh, by the way, if you use this approach and we can figure out how to apply it to casework, you might be able to stop making decisions. But Meredith and I've discussed that this is a cultural approach as much as a scientific approach because, and it might take certainly to the end of my career and maybe the end of her career before we actually see <laughs> that kind of change. And, and to be fair, there is precedent for this already. It's happening every day in the courtroom. It's called DNA. So we already know because they're not taking a decision. They're not saying that blood stain came from that person. So we already know that, that it is acceptable and can be done. Yep. Yeah, okay, fair. All right, so then the next one, and these kind of run together and go right off of the, the numbers you were talking about. So most pattern comparison disciplines, let's say fingerprints, now have error rate studies, which estimate the likelihood an examiner would make various errors, right? So we, we know we've got that. But these studies do not demonstrate the strength of the evidence for each image pair. So they just report false positive and false negative error rates. But that's it. That's the black box aspect. We don't know the strength, per se, of what this match or non-match might be. And here's the next part that I love. However, the complexity or difficulty of a comparison is typically not communicated to the fact finder unless the examiner provides additional nuance or context during reporting or testimony. Thus, all conclusions within the same reporting category are treated equivalently by the consumer. Can you talk a little bit about that, specifically, basically, how all IDs are effectively equivalent? Yeah, so you can imagine a world where we still made decisions, but instead of three categories, we had five categories. That's been bantied around. Some disciplines like handwriting have like eight categories, nine, nine categories. You could imagine a hundred categories. Like there's no real, the, the category, we're, we're basically, there's some value inside your head. We're trying to communicate to someone else. Currently, we've chosen this pretty Spartan three category scale. Every time you reduce this continuous scale into bins, like three bins, you lose information. So there are some where you're just got over the, the threshold and, and cause you still have some doubt, but you're going to call it. And other ones where you're like, yeah, fine. Yeah, clearly no, nobody's going to dispute this. You could just show the image to the jury and they would, they'd be fine with it. So I meandered. Ask your question again. Sure. Well, and I'll even back up a little bit. The way that you just described it, and I'll, I'll add a little to it, is that sometimes you can have an identification that maybe you struggled with at the end of the day, and you weren't sure if you had enough to call it an ID. You go home that night, sleep on it, come back with fresh eyes. You're sitting in the morning, eh, maybe you show it to a colleague, that colleague. Eh. But in the end, you finally decide 48 hours later, I'm going to call this an identification. Goes for verification, verifier's not sure. Ultimately, you both agree, yes, we can call this an identification. You and another colleague or other colleagues struggled for two or three days over it. And then there are other ones with 500 minutiae agreement and you made the decision instantly and there's no doubt. Both of those reported as identifications and there's no nuance to it. There's no, this one is the kind of identification where errors or examiners are more likely to make mistakes as opposed to this one. There's no nuance. It's all one giant identification. And I think your point was a lot of information has been lost when you bend it into that big bin of identification. Fair? That's right. And I, I, haven't, I don't talk a lot of detectives, but the few that I do, 
they say, look, we live in a world of gray. Like we're constantly evaluating the credibility of witness. We're going on hunches. If you're, if you have heartburn about this impression, like, like tell me, we, because all of our other things, none of that other stuff has been black and white. So yeah, I think that the end user could tolerate ambiguity. And for some reason, the field of blatant prints has decided that we're going to create this one category and we're going to shift everything up into it or yeah, exactly what Glenn said. Yeah, and, and to your point, the ambiguity that we're avoiding is because, and this is what I've heard for 25 years, which I don't believe to be true, but is the common thought in the field, it's for their benefit. It's actually for the investigator because they can't handle the ambiguity because if they get something ambiguous, they're going to go kick in doors and arrest people and the jails will be filled with people wrongly convicted on fingerprint evidence. And not only have I not met a prosecutor who's willing to prosecute on such limited evidence alone by itself, all by itself, I don't know good investigators that operate that way either because as the ones I've interviewed have said the same thing. All I do are follow bad leads. All I do is deal with incorrect information day in, day out. So I'm very cautious and skeptical when I get this information. It's about building a larger narrative, and which is what I imagine jurors are supposed to do with that information as well. So it's, it's what I run into, but it's this pervasive fear our field has. If you give any anything less than absolute certainty, the, the sky will fall. Yep, that's yes, right. Exactly. That's right. So quick question for everyone out here in the hall and, and online. Are there any agencies out there that when an ID is reported, any other information is given? Like this was an ID, but it was a complex comparison or non-complex. In the report. And having that be in the report or even in the notes. I, I like it in the report. I'm, I, I, yes. But I'm, I'm asking, is it in either for a... Uh, for, right, uh, fair enough. Yeah. The file for discovery that was requested of a complex print. Okay. We don't send it out. So it's not to the to the level of what of it's still in the report. It looks the same as Tom was describing, as every ID looks the same. But there can be in at least some agencies a distinction if you dig deep enough into the file of which latents took two or three days and you have heartburn over it versus the ones that was just from across the room. Yep, that's an ID. Look at that scar, just write it up. Yeah. All right. So the, the next one here, again, moving towards the paper, in the absence of quantitative approaches, European practitioners have adopted a subjective likelihood ratio. So can you explain a little bit what you meant about that? And what are the pros and cons of a subjective likelihood ratio? What is that? And what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, Eric and I were talking earlier along similar lines, so I'll riff off of that. So the, in my mind, I make a distinction between a decision, like identification, and observations, which is like maybe the DNA likelihood ratio in, from probabilistic genotyping. And this is kind of a philosophical argument, not in the bad way, but, but in the sense of how do you want your justice system to work? Who do you want making your decisions? And the, the general idea is that the jury is the ultimate fact finder or the prosecutor or the judge, and that it's the job of the support fields in forensics to provide observations to help that ultimate decision. And so you, and that makes 
statistical sense. You want to preserve all of the information until the very end, and then you make a decision. Because every time you make a decision, you essentially lose information. And so you want to lose as little information as possible by leaving the decision to the very end. Now, there are all kinds of issues with the American justice system um, that's different from the European system. We have an adversarial system. They have a more cooperative system. But I think the primary distinction is, are you making decisions or are you leaving the decision to the jury and just making observations? And so Erica and I were talking about whether the term identification, if you define it as extremely strong support for common source, is that move it away from a decision? And I think the answer to that depends on how your, your end users interpret that. You provide enough context or whatever. So that's an unanswerable question until you know how your audience is interpreting it. Okay, all right. And so now as we now begin to discuss statistical models, as someone who has advocated for statistical models for a long time, this is something that I really resonated with me when I read this, barriers to adoption of statistical models may include the fact that government agencies are reluctant to take on new technologies unless the perceived benefits outweigh the perceived risks. And agencies may have concerns about validating or how to interpret these statistics, how to train examiners and how to express them in court, et cetera. So I'm curious a little bit if you could at least give your thoughts about what are, from your perspective, perceived benefits of statistical models? Why should we even, why, why bother? If we've got really low false positive error rates of the black box, what benefits could there possibly be from statistical models? Yeah, really good question. So let me answer that question by personalizing it for you guys. So one of the more recent projects I spun up with an undergraduate, Mary Kate Klein, and also working with Meredith Kuhn and John Vanderkolk, is looking at the emotional aspects of the job of identifying fingerprints. Because I think that the model that we've had of an examiner is that they're just like Mr. Spock. <laughs> that that you, your job is to come in, clinically evaluate the observations and, 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 and render a decision and then pass that decision along. And I think that that does a grave injustice to the role that you guys play as human beings in this process. <laughs> that, so I talk to examiners who have the Sunday scaries, who just don't want to go to work because they don't want the pressure of making a bad ID and potentially sending someone to jail. And I totally get that. I could not do this job. One of the advantages of producing observations and quantifying those observations is that you would eliminate that aspect of the job. There would be no worry about making a wrong decision because you would stop making decisions. You would still provide support. Evidence. Evidence, observations, absolutely. But you wouldn't make an incorrect decision because you would stop making decisions. There's lots of ways to still have all of the verification and proficiency tests and everything else. Because as Glenn was pointing out, DNA has this model and it works fine for them. Now they have enormous numbers. So that's why it's, it's easier for them. But yeah, there's no reason we couldn't follow that model. So that's one of the strengths of, for, from your perspective is that making a tough call goes away if we can figure out a way to apply this to casework. There are other ways that we'll talk about that allow us to apply it that, that will help in the short term, which helps us understand how to communicate the observations that we have. All right. So then the last statement, 
again, if if we accept that there could be some value to a, a statistical model, this paper has presented a, a model that could provide a statistic. And when we were talking earlier, you, you gave that great quote about models. So why don't you share that with the audience? Because I think they'll enjoy that. Sure. So models are, are basically a way of summarizing data. They're, they're a way of kind of explaining how the world works. And different models are appropriate for different situations. So let's get out of the fingerprint world and think about, some of you may have flown in, I certainly flew in on an airplane. And you can think of lots of different models for an airplane. You can have a model airplane. I used to fly model airplanes back in the day. And they can fly and they have motors just like real airplanes do. Other models might be the electronic system. I had a friend in graduate school who worked in the, for Boeing and he, he worked in the part of the 777 that 80% of all the electronics came into his little workspace. Mm. And so he had to manage all of these wires coming in. So he had this giant model of, of all of the, and I think it was the first fly-by-wire airplane. So the electronics were super important for that airplane. So that's a different model. So models do different things depending on the task requirements. And the only way to have a perfect, complete model is when they built the very first working 777, that was a complete model. Every other model was just a model. My favorite was Boeing Man, who was an anthropomorphic man that could guarantee that if you needed to adjust this particular nut inside the airplane, that the mechanic could actually reach up and, and adjust it. So different models for different purposes. And what's the famous quote about models? Oh, the famous quote. This is, I don't know who originally said this, certainly not my quote. All models are wrong, but some are useful. And the point is that we, we don't, any model is going to have issues, but it does force you to put your cards on the table and make, and make your assumptions explicit. So we have lots of complaints about the model that I'll propose, but the existing model is whatever you do now. So we should compare our model against the current existing system and talk about their various strengths and weaknesses and assumptions and so on. And it might even be fair to say that models would not necessarily have to replace an examiner. No. They might support an examiner. And there might be certain limited uses where the model will have certain advantages and other instances where the model is less useful. Yeah, I think of this as a way of calibrating the examiner's observations. And no, nothing in what we're proposing. In fact, our model explicitly requires human data. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. So the goal of this article is to create a quantitative likelihood ratio model as a measure for pattern comparison disciplines, which can be applied really to any forensic discipline, any pattern discipline, but you chose in this instance fingerprints as a starting point. Yeah. So we should explain exactly what a likelihood ratio is. So a likelihood ratio is a way of expressing the strength of your observations. And right now, what you do is you translate those strength of your observations into one of the three words, exclusion, inconclusive, or identification. And a likelihood ratio preserves more of the information in whatever has been accumulating in your mind. And it expresses it in a way that allows the end user to naturally incorporate it with their other information in the case. So if you're a juror in a case, you have some prior information, maybe it's an eyewitness testimony, or maybe you're just looking at the guy in the, in the, the defense table and he looks kind of suspicious. So you're already thinking he's guilty. 
the likelihood ratio provides a natural way of updating their beliefs. So likelihood ratio is basically a change in beliefs. So the appropriate way to use a likelihood ratio is ask yourself, how likely is it that this guy's guilty based on what I've heard so far? Suppose you think, hey, he's five times more likely to be guilty than innocent. And now I present a likelihood ratio of 20. That 20 reflects a belief change in you that you should take that number 20, multiply it times the five you had before. And now you should believe based on the evidence, if you trust me as a producing this likelihood ratio appropriately, he's now a hundred times more likely to be guilty than innocent. And that number a hundred times more likely to be guilty than innocent. Suppose I give you a likelihood ratio from DNA, that's 10,000. Well, then I would multiply 10,000 times a hundred and produce, I don't even, I can't do math in my head, a, a big number, million, I don't know, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a natural way of chaining together evidence in a way that appropriately expresses the strength of the evidence without doing the jury's job for them. That is a great explanation, although I have one thing, because I was sitting on a panel about 10 years ago in Australia, and this was the, they were talking about the same thing, explained it exactly the same way. And the one thing that I have to point out is that there is this assumption, and let's say it's source for fingerprints and source for DNA as well. It's the assumption that the, the source of this evidence also makes the person guilty of the crime. And there's this weird disconnect between, right? And, and maybe for some cases, that's true. If it's, it's a rape and maybe we have some an unknown individual, we have unknown fingerprints and unknown DNA. But in other crimes, I can imagine that simply being able to demonstrate source, yes, their DNA, yes, their fingerprints, does not necessarily equate to guilt. That's where there's this, I think, an oversimplification of how the likelihood ratio translates from the evidence to the guilt portion. So, okay, so likelihood, likelihood ratios go from very, 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 very small, not zero, but close to zero, through one, up to as big as they want to be. And one is basically the evidence is, the observations are equally likely under the two column alternative universes. Sure. So this guy did it, somebody else did it. Those are two alternative universes. And how likely is it I would observe this much similarity between these two prints if this guy did it? How likely would I observe this much similarity between these two prints if somebody else did it? That's pretty much what you do in your head whenever you're doing a comparison. Likelihood ratios are a way of translating that thing that's inside your head to a value that can be combined with other sources of evidence in a way we just described, this sort of chaining together of evidence. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now we're ready to talk about the particular paper, the model, and the method. And so, yeah. So, those of you listening here in the room or, or online or later with the podcast may be familiar with previous discussions we've had about likelihood ratios and calculating likelihood ratios. And those all deal with, to one degree or another, looking at the features in latent prints and unknown prints, and then the calculation through different models use different ways to do that, eventually lands on a this ratio and a number that comes out from that. So from all that you've heard before, set that all aside. <laughs> And so this likelihood ratio is, is calculating that using a different process. So you can talk a little bit about, yeah. about the method that, that this model uses to calculate that number. 
Yeah, so the strength of this approach is that it can be applied to any discipline. It can be applied to palm prints. It can be applied to handwriting. We've applied it to, to blood pattern. It can even be applied to DNA, although they have their own likelihood ratios. Let me get concrete here for a moment. We've talked about this idea that there's this continuous value inside your head. If we had a magic electrode or the Spock mind meld, we could read it out directly. But instead, we're relying on you translating that to language, because you can speak the language, into a word. And that word is a summary of this continuous value inside your head. Now, let's imagine, and when we call it a latent axis, it's different from a latent print, but it's latent axis means that it's unmeasurable. And, and science is full of, of latent values. Um, we can't even actually agree on the speed of light. There are like 17 different ways of measuring the speed of light, and none of them agree. <laughs> I mean, they're all pretty close, but none of them actually agree with each other. So measuring stuff is hard, but essentially when you give a word, you're measuring the contents of your observations. So you're already doing this. What we're doing is we're using a collection of responses, the number of people who said exclusion, the number of people who said inclusive, and the number of people who said identification, as a proxy for indirectly measuring the value that was inside your head. That if we had a magic electrode, we would definitely use, but we don't. All we have is what you said on this particular three-point scale. Now we get this underlying latent axis, we would love to know from a magic electrode what those values were. All we can do is infer what they might be using this approach called the ordered probit model, which is a complicated way of saying that we assume that if we could go in and using this magic electrode, we would observe a number of different values on this latent axis. And that because of the, the magic of the way the world works and statistics, the distribution, the collection of responses on that underlying latent axis probably follow a normal distribution. Why a normal? Well, it turns out that the classic example of, of the normal distribution is the distribution of human heights. So I was watching the NBA playoffs last night, and that's full of people that are, that are super tall. But you know, you don't pick random people and have them play in the NBA playoffs. They're selected. They're chosen specifically for that task. And if you take a random sample of heights, you know, I think the average human height is like 5'10 for males and 5'6 for, for women. And, you know, that, that was an interesting statistic because I was, I was in the wilds of Western Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, last week visiting with my mother-in-law. And we visited Loretta Lynn's home birthplace, home place. And it's everything you could ever imagine about it. I would highly recommend if you're ever in Eastern Kentucky, visiting Loretta Lynn's birthplace. And, and the guide mentioned that the average height of males during the, around the Civil War was five, six. And that explains why the ceilings were super low in, mm. in this little house. So- I would hate it there. <laughs> you, definitely, you definitely would hate it there. So the question is what determines a person's height? And why has it changed from 5'6 to 5'10 in 100 years or whatever it's been? I think she just died and she was like 90 something or other. So about 100 years. So it turns out that there are lots of things that, that go into human height. There's diet, there's genes. And in order to be tall, like Eric here, you have to have an, all those things kind of line up. You have to have the right diet. Your parents had to feed you nutritional food growing up. You, you won the genetic lottery, both your parents were tall. 
So there are lots of little decisions that go into to height. And for most of us who are average height, we had some good things and we had some bad things. And most of the time you get a mixture of good and bad. And that's why most of, the, most of us are around the average. But if everything goes right or everything goes wrong, you end up in the tails. And so anytime you have a situation where you have lots of little decisions that contribute to the outcome, that tends to give you a normal distribution of these outcomes. And that's why we justify the assumption of the normal distribution in, in this ordered probit model. So we're trying to, to use this model to approximate the, the, the collection, the distribution of responses on this latent axis. And then we can do things with that that ultimately allow us to, to compute this likelihood ratio. But you can just as a, as a way of, without going through all the illustrations and math, because I'll do that this afternoon, the idea is that the clearer the latent gets, the more that that collection of responses would shift up to the higher end of that scale. And the normal distribution would naturally follow that collection. And so I want you to give you, give you the sense that we're using the distribution of examiner responses to, to approximate what the collection of magic electrode responses would have been had we had a magic electrode. So kind of a, maybe a way to, to think about this is you went through and you pulled in data from a few different sources, right? One of them being the original black box data. And then you've also done some research on like five conclusion scales recently. But let's take like the black box data. Just imagine for everyone listening uh, in your head, the latent print known print pair, what that would look like if I were to say 50 people looked at it, 48 said ID, two said inconclusive, right? Just kind of picture what that would look like in your head. Now picture another latent 10 print pair where I say, okay, if 50 people looked at it, 25 said ID, 20 said inconclusive, five, five said exclusion. That's a very different comparison that, that you might, you're probably imagining. Some distortion, some problems. And overall, which of those two sets of comparisons has a higher risk of an error being involved in it? Is it the one with 48 IDs or maybe only 25 IDs? And then you can go to the other end. You've got another latent. One ID, 40 inconclusives, and nine exclusions. Uh, okay. I also, since it's the research data, I want to see what's the ground truth on that one. But but you can just kind of get a picture. So then it's taking that range of different conclusions from a group of examiners and saying, okay, let's use not the specific minutiae data from the comparison, but this collection of 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 conclusions to then build a likelihood ratio model for. That's right. So we've taken to calling it a consensus-based likelihood ratio, and now I'm doubting that because there are situations where you do not have a consensus, where you have a third set of inconclusives, third set of exclusion, third set ID. Those those comparisons exist in the black box data. So maybe it's not, maybe it's a collective <laughs> likelihood ratio, but it's using all of the data from all the examiners. Let me just say one other thing, since we're doing audience participation and because the I want to make a distinction between making decisions and likelihood ratios. So examiners hate it when I ask this question, but I'm going to do it anyway. Before you do a comparison, how likely do you think that's a mated pair? Boy, I'm going to give what I've come to dub a standard latent print answer, which is it depends. <laughs> yeah. So the answer from the audience is it should be a likelihood of one. 
likelihood ratio. Oh, sorry, likelihood ratio of one as when you're starting out. Yeah, so we would think of that as the priors, the prior odds right. of one. The priors don't have to be a single number. They could be anything. Okay, so that's one answer. Other answer. I, I, I can jump in with one yeah. here is that if I've made some IDs already to an individual, yeah. my priors, of course, will be going yeah. up. And this even more so if the prior ID in that case was right next to the one that you're about to start comparing. Adjacent and sequence. There's also, oftentimes, we know who's submitting this case. And there are some officers that just tend to find latents that belong to people that are in the system. And you're like, boy, when I get a case from this guy, it's, it's, I'm, I'm usually going to find an ID at some point in the process. And there's also officers that I don't know if they just, it's just bad luck or they're just not looking in the right spot, but you're never making an ID for that guy because he just doesn't find the latents that end up being IDs. And even can expand out for like a state agency, different submitting agencies. There's some agencies that just, you know, they just don't send in good stuff. It seems like so it, I guess it's it's it does there's a lot of I think variability that goes into the expectation, what APHIS you're using, and et cetera. The quality I, of the loop. I, I can imagine too, people in the audience could think of a case, I think of one right now where I was given some evidence where I was not expecting A to find any fingerprints. Mm -hmm. And when I did find some fingerprints, I the idea that this bit of evidence was even related to the case at all was so remote in my head, but I just had to do it anyway. And sure enough, you end up hitting and the case breaks on this bit of evidence that my presumption going into it is this has nothing to do with the case. I'm, I'm sure people in the audience have had that. So that, that was, if you will, a, a sort of a negative pride. So the related question, now that it made you uncomfortable, because now you have to think about your prior assumptions, which might delve into the domain of contextual bias. The related question is, when you make a mistake, what are the consequences of that mistake? Again, a standard latent print answer. It depends. Uh, is the mistake a bad ID? Big consequences, bad exclusion. It depends even further on where you work. Clerical, <laughs> clerical error. You know, you spelled the suspect's last name wrong. All mistakes with different levels of consequences. So wouldn't it be awesome if you didn't have to think about either the priors or the consequences of making an error? W wouldn't it be awesome if you could, you didn't have to think about your prior assumptions about how likely it is a mated pair before you look at it. And you didn't have to think about the consequences of making a mistake. That's totally conceivable because that's exactly what happens in DNA right now. That world exists. But yeah, you're absolutely right. How do you stay motivated? Well. DNA is a good model. How do you stay motivated as a DNA analyst? I don't work in DNA, so I don't know the answer to that, but presumably they've solved it because it's, yeah. But and, and I think there's another distinction here is that there are different kinds of mistakes that DNA analysts, of course, can make. And, and there are consequences to that. So they obviously are, your point is you're simply reporting your observations. Yes. Whether or not this latent print truly came from this person or not, that's not what you're, that's not the decision you're making. You're reporting, here's correspondence, here's my observations, here's this, and here's a number associated with that. I and mean, that's really what you're, you're saying. And then what jurors assign to that 
that's responsibilities off your shoulders. That's what you're proposing. Yeah, I mean, it's de by definitely not me proposing that. In the paper, there's a yeah. whole list of citations going back a decade of people who proposed this stuff. I'm just, I'm late coming to this viewpoint. <laughs> then again, though, the, each of those observations is an opportunity to make a mistake as well. Yep. The, the observation isn't devoid of the potential for a mistake. Yep. DNA uh, can swap a sample. Yep. Or or misread a, a peak height, uh, a yep. peak height and, and, yep. or whatever. But uh, so even in the when you're talking about the not making a conclusion or not having risking that mistake, it is focused on the on that the end conclusion part, but that still exists in the observe the collection of observations along the way beforehand. Yes. Yeah. So I, if your question is about, well, this is again not from forensics, and I apologize for deviating out of out of my lane. But in in my university, we have undergraduate teaching assistants who help out with our courses, and we have many more undergraduates than graduate students who are helping with their courses because we teach a zillion majors. And the College of Arts and Sciences came down and said, "Hey, you can have these undergraduates supervising other undergraduates, but they cannot do anything subjective grading." meaning you couldn't grade essays. Hmm. And we're, okay, we're like, okay, well, what, what is objective then? And then <laughs> it turns out the psychology that... department has an issue with that directive. <laughs> other, 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 unit, other parts of the university are like, okay, we'll just, you guys are, oh, but what is the subjective? But then you get like, a, you circle a quiz question as your answer, and then you erase it, and you circle something else, but your erasing is kind of faint, and suddenly you have to decide what was the intent. This is like voter intent. <laughs> like all these like... Like it turns out that there's nothing objective. Even clicking clicking a radio button in Canvas is that's a, as objective as you're going to get. But then you have like network come. Yeah. So there is no objective. So let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that anything is objective. Fine with that. <laughs> All right. Now I, I thought I would dig in a little bit to a couple of the results to try to put a finer point on what we're really talking about here. So I'm, I grabbed two of your highest examples, and one of the ones was there was a trial where it was given to, or there were data from 37 examiners. So it was a, a match pair. They were from the same source, ground truth. Participants did not know this. There were 37 identifications, zero exclusions, zero inconclusives. This was what we'd refer to as just a no-brainer, very mm -hmm. clear, and everyone got it right, and that was correct with respect to ground truth, mm -hmm. right? So full consensus. So the, the likelihood ratio that the, your model produced, and I know you'll get into the math, in your later lecture was around log 5.1, which was effectively just over 100,000, right? So it's, for those of you, a little bit of math, right? That's a one with five zeros after it, log 5.1. So just over 100,000, I think it was like 110,000 something. And that was the highest like the ratio that was produced in, in that. So in some way, is this bounded? Is that an upper bound for this model? Is that the best one could expect? Now, to put in perspective, what is 100,000? That's the equivalent of taking a coin and flipping it 17 times and getting 17 heads in a row, which is very impressive. That's not, when we think about DNA likelihood ratios, those are millions, billions, quadrillions, quintillions. 100,000 seems low to me from a perspective of feature selection and rarity and random match probabilities, but yet 100,000 is a likelihood ratio with very powerful evidence. I know there's a lot there, but is it bounded? What about that number? Yeah, so 
this helps us, I think, understand what likelihood ratios are and how to interpret them. So, and again, I'll reference back to DNA just because DNA gets numbers that are outrageously stupid, like septillions, numbers that we don't even understand. Yeah, we right. can't understand them. In fact, they're so large that we can't even ever empirically evaluate the exactly. independence assumption that goes into them. And they're also so large that they're potentially prejudicial and people ignore things like, is this number even relevant to the case? Like maybe the defendant is admitting to having sex, but it was saying it was consensual. Yeah. Then it doesn't matter that this number is in septillions. Now you have to judge his credibility and not whether this is, he's admitted it's his DNA. The fact that it's septillions is irrelevant. Or, or the um, chance of swapping tubes, yes. even if it's one in a million, is billions and billions and billions of times more likely yes. than a random match probability in the septillion. Yeah. They argue that they should cap their their DNA, their likelihood ratios at like a billion or something like that, even though that even that's probably too high. The the numbers that you get out of the likelihood ratio, they're always dependent on whatever reference database you're using and the model that you're using. And that's true in DNA as well. Whatever reference database they're using, the the DNA, the likelihood ratios will shift around. And different assumptions. If you're including a brother as a potential, you're comparing this guy with his brother, you're going to get a very different likelihood ratio versus comparing this guy versus some unknown random person. And that's probably true in latent prints as well. There are probably family similarities in, in fingerprints that we haven't maybe investigated all that much, although maybe the twin studies have done some of that. Yeah. Ask your question again or amplify sure. it. So is is this a bound of the model because of the data set mm. that you so that's the number that came out that's the highest for the best case scenario here and should we look at that number and go oh that's way too low we really we can do better than that because if we move towards feature comparisons we could be more like dna and getting better like the ratio numbers or can we be really happy with that and go to court and say yeah it's a hundred thousand times more likely here yeah okay so these are really good questions. So the challenge with likelihood ratios is that I've laid out this amazing, promising new world where you don't have to make decisions, you don't make errors, all you do is communicate the results of your observations, and we can still contribute to the process. Like I don't think you got anyone wants just their fingerprint identification to to be the reason this guy goes to death row. I th think we can admit that that's not something that you would want. So if there's nuance, you'd probably want to communicate that. So great, let's generalize that to the entire process. Let's, let's always just communicate our observations. The upper bound of the model is kind of an artifact of the kinds of assumptions that go into the model. I tend to worry less about those really high-end numbers because you can just show the print to someone. If, you, if the likelihood ratio is 100,000, it could be a billion, who knows? I'm quite certain that a really clear print with level three detail, you could put up against any DNA analysis. It's just, it's that, that's the guy. It's let's be honest here. So I don't worry so much about the high end and you're absolutely right that, that likely ratios of even 10,000, whatever your beliefs going in, that changes it by 10,000. So if you think he's five times more likely to be guilty than the innocent before you heard this evidence, he's 50,000 times more likely to be guilty than the innocent. That's probably enough to send him away, for sure. Although we're not the jury, so we don't, get, we don't have to worry about that. The problem is, and I'll talk about this this afternoon, that some of the numbers we're getting 
are frighteningly low. Well, now that's that's my next example. Yeah. So let's we'll go there. But the for the the high end though, just to finish that off, mm -hmm. is that so? When I was reading through it, it talks about that 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 hidden scale uh, mm -hmm. that is is the upper bound. Is it just a coincidence that like you know you you, you max out at like log five and that that scales I think went up to like five as like the uh, or that rate that the split between I think inclusive and ID was like at four and a half. Is, are those related? Like if you if you made that hidden scale go out to ten instead of five, would that would the upper bound of the calculation go up as well? So we can only work with the data that we have, which is basically this very, very sparse three category scale. It's also likely ratios are also a property of the nature of the information and how good your subjects are. So this might come to shock to no one, but the likelihood ratios in handwriting are much lower <laughs> than in, in fingerprints because the data is not as strong. There's just more noise in the data. More variability. Yeah, more variability. And so part of it is this, the small scale. Part of it is that the, the, the images that are put in black box studies are not the lights out kind of just clear as day kind of thing. But there probably is some upper limit to the... The bigger challenge to, to large likelihood ratios is that this is the fundamental challenge of either of both black box studies and of our approach. In the original black box study, the 2011 three et al study, they had literally 17,000-ish trials to find six erroneous identifications. Yes. And it turned out that most of the erroneous identifications were on some images that were not typical. They were black powder on galvanized, galvanized metal, which is kind of not something you encounter every day. Totally reversed. And totally reversed. So if you're basing your entire estimate of the strength of the field off these rarish stimuli, image images, then that's not great. So what we're trying to do is use not just these six numbers out of 17,000 trials, we're instead using the entire distribution to estimate this small right-hand tail. Yeah. The downside is that our estimate of that slight, that small, because there's so little data there, there are six trials out of 17,000, that our model depends critically on the assumptions of normality of the normal distribution. Well, and okay, and that's perfect for this next <laughs> one. Because, because this, the other example that had a very high likelihood ratio, log 5.0 basically, so it was the second one right below that. Here's what the results were from that data set 31 identifications for exclusions, zero inconclusives. So there were four out of 35 that had a differing opinion than the consensus, but it was four exclusions, false exclusions, and 31 identifications. But that's because of the normal, it's, it's because we're dealing with a normal distribution that there's, we're not treating these false negatives, these clear errors any differently. It's just a different decision than the majority took. That's the consequence of the, norm, the, the normality of the curve, right? Yeah, so as we were talking about models of airplanes previously, and, and our model is kind of like the, the model that, that studies the, how the, wing, the wind goes over the wing at different airspeeds and different flap configurations. It's not the model of the electronic bay where all the electronics come together. So our model is an incomplete model. It probably doesn't 
completely account for the erroneous exclusions that might happen from mislocalizations. We can only work with the data that we get. It's possible that we could extend this model to account for, and there are various hacks that you could do that would assume some small percentage of, we call it a lapse rate in psychology. Like you have subjects, usually they're sophomore college students and they're doing experiments. And sometimes they're going to blink during the trial and they're not going to get the answer because they haven't seen the stimulus, but you can't rerun the trial. So they're going to respond randomly and you, you can build this lapse rate into your model. And we could do something similar here. I don't know that it would change the results all that much because it really only affects the situation where most of the time, everyone is unanimous, and then a few people mislocalize. The point being is, though, it, the model is considering it a different conclusion as opposed to necessarily not just a different conclusion. It's it's an error. It's treating it just as different conclusions. Well, there's a yeah. It would you would have to build an additional mechanism right. into the model. It's not waiting in. Yeah, it's different... no longer a single dimensional model. It has right. some other dimension that includes mislocalizations. That's right. Okay. So now let's go towards one where there is not a consensus. There was a there was a particular trial where 18 examiners made an identification, one examiner was inconclusive, and three excluded. This produced a likelihood ratio of 7.7, which is quite low relative to the astronomical levels observed in DNA. This is what the paper said, where values can easily exceed a billion. A statistically literate jury member might multiply the guilt or innocence odds ratio by 7.7 here to obtain a new odds ratio. So if the example you used, if they were starting with a prior of two, twice as likely to be guilty than 7.7, that would multiply it. You'd end up with 15 times more likely to be guilty afterwards. So before you said, yeah, well, you can get some pretty low likelihood ratios. Here's one where... 22 examiners looked at it, 18 said ID, one inconclusive, three excluded, but now we're only dealing with, even though there's a consensus, a likelihood ratio around, let's say, eight. Yeah, let me take you down the garden path here, <laughs> a logical, torturous logical chain here. So in the most recent definition of identification in certainly ASB, I don't know if OSEC as well, they equate identification with extremely strong support for common source. If you look at verbal equivalency scales in the literature, the phrase extremely strong support for common source is equated to either a likelihood ratio of a million or 100,000. So let's use a lower number there. So let's assume that identification is being equated to a likelihood ratio of 100,000. We're saying here's the impression pair that got a majority of identifications that a likelihood ratio of eight there is a big difference between 100,000 or a million and eight, like several orders of magnitude. So this, that's why I'm suggesting that it's possible that examiners are overstating the strength of their evidence when they use identification. Come on, Eric, say it. Well, so I read your face. Come I, on. I, well, okay. So first off, it seems to me, it seems like it depends, but that, I guess that's the end of everything. <laughs> because I can see a latent known pair that from this model produces likelihood ratio of eight. Now, let's say let's have two pairs, right? They each produce likelihood ratio about eight. But in one, going through a more traditional like feature-based likelihood calculation, the, the folks that erroneously excluded that one were just flat wrong. And based on the features, that evidence supports a likelihood ratio upwards of 100,000 or a million. And the other one, 
it's it's a tough one and the examiners got it wrong they got it wrong because it was tough they were they didn't just blink that day and and get it wrong that way it's just it really was challenging and it's sketchy and in around a delta and going through a feature-based model that takes all that into account is calculation is yep it's like the ratio is eight and so i i see the point of yes sometimes when we go in the majority says id that might be an overstatement because of, of how tough it was but in some situations it 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 might not be it, it kind of it depends from this calculation of whether or not it truly is an overstatement or not yeah okay so really good question really good point let me answer it by once again talking about a tangent <laughs> We've all, we, we do tangents. We, we've all, we definitely do tangents. So we've all survived COVID. Thank God it's mostly over. Although I did wear a mask when I was on the plane here because when I was flying back from Australia on a wedding in March, my wife and I both got COVID from not the international flight, the domestic flight. So COVID is still there, unfortunately. The COVID test, the rapid test you take where you swab your nose and then drop the drops and then you wait 20 minutes. And in my case, when I had it, I waited like four seconds and it was already red. I'm like, damn, <laughs> it's telling you, it's making a decision. And of course, just like all decisions, it can be wrong. There could be a, an erroneous identification uh, for COVID. Like the first time I had COVID, that, that line was barely red, but I thought prudence, whatever. So just like making identification in fingerprints, the COVID test is making a decision for you. And we're trusting whoever put this test together to decide how much of whatever it's identifying to, that makes this line red is interpreted as having COVID. But there are situations where you might take a COVID test for whatever reason, and you've been basically a hermit for the last two weeks. Like you have had zero exposure to anyone, let alone someone with COVID. So even if this line turns red, the base rate of you having COVID is incredibly low. So the COVID test itself, you can reinterpret given your prior history there. So one of the ways to think about this and, and to tie it back to this question is maybe when we report a likely ratio, that that likely ratio doesn't apply to any one person. Like maybe there are the people out there. I always use Melissa Gish as my example of the best examiner I know and apologies to everyone else, but she's like my prototypical best examiner because I've seen her do some amazing things and things that I would just be like a hopeless on. So her likely ratio, the value of her comparison is probably better than, than someone else's. And I fully admit that that's exactly right. We have a reference database that we use that she contributed to for sure, but we call it, I guess, a consensus-based likelihood ratio because it represents a consensus of lots of people, not just a, a zillion Melissa Gishnes. Yeah. I think we want to get into how we can actually apply this model to actual casework going beyond from the from the this black box data and into an actual laboratory. Yeah, suppose I have a case, I have a lift, and I make an identification. I give it to good old Jeff there. Blindly, though, he also then blindly verifies. Now we have independent corroboration. We have now two examiners who identified this. We have, within our notes, both identifications of this individual. How do we report that? How do we generate a number for that? What do we do in-house now? So there are two ways to apply this research directly. 
One is that it helps us calibrate the language that we use. So we can ask if we're getting likely ratios less than 20, less than 100, and we have a language that implies or is interpreted by the consumer as 100,000 or more, that's a big disconnect. And we might want to ask whether our, our scales are appropriate. You, your instinct might be, well, like maybe we can add more scales like support for common source. Turns out that doesn't really help very much. The, the threshold for identification, well, it, it does help. It, it's a step in the right direction for sure. It's interesting that the, the expanded scales use a combination of, of decision language and strength of support language. So at least we're moving in the right direction. But yeah, getting people to stop making decisions is my apparently my life goal. That was the first part I forgot about the how do we what now that we have this in our notes, we've identified this individual in the case. How do we run it through a model? How do we generate a number for that? Mm, and what yes. would that look okay. like? So that I can go to court, what am I going to be able to present to the jurors? So I think there are two things that are that are potentially bad that have happened. One is that the the black, original black box study came out. I know they're doing another one, which hopefully will be will improve upon that. But we we saw oh six errors out of seventeen thousand trials or seven thousand or whatever however many mated pairs there were or non mated pairs. So we're like phew bullet dodge. And then the the paper came out the Cedric Newman paper a decade or so ago and had likely ratios that started at ten thousand and went higher. And I remember at II hearing that and we're like phew okay we don't have to worry anymore like. This stuff is golden. The fingerprints are pretty are solved. It's a solved problem. And I think that that lulled us into a false sense of security. It's completely possible that our approach is underestimating the true value of the strength of the evidence. My challenge for the community, though, is that we're the only one bringing numbers to the table. The only thing the community has is this black box data. And People are potentially quite conservative when they're doing black box studies. So we might be underestimating the erroneous identifications. And you talk to people who've gone into labs and because not everyone goes to II and goes to do, do black box studies. Like there are a lot of people out there doing casework that are, are very far from the typical black box study participant. It so. might underrepresent some of the the less skilled or yes, less absolutely. competent examples. So all likelihood ratios and all black box studies are based on a reference database and a reference data set of subjects. So, so how do we translate our ID to a number in, in our laboratory? So I'm hedging here because this is this is pilot data a little bit. And I know that this is what you want. So I'm going to tell you what we're doing so far. Or theoretically, what we're I'm, I'm going to I'm going to offer this as an opportunity for you to participate in our studies. And, and in my talk this afternoon, I'll throw up a QR code so you can be on a list that hears about future studies. When you learned to, to do comparisons, you had to, to calibrate relative to some shared consensus about what an ID represents. If you're a rock climber, you can, there, there are grades like 510, 511, 512. And if you go to Europe, a 512 is a 5.9 in, in the US or something like that. Like people have to come to consensus. How much is sufficient for, make, for me to make an ID? And, and how you came up with that, how much is enough? Probably depended on your mentor, probably depended on your validator. It probably depended on the consequences of making an error. Is, is your agency 
a punitive one or does it have a sort of a more open progressive model for dealing with errors, retraining? But somehow you had to come up with a shared consensus. We're estimating that same kind of shared knowledge in our approach. In fact, our data is filtered through your data. <laughs> like the only input to our model is the output from humans. So we're just helping us understand the strength of that, those observations, given the fact that when you, as a detective, submit a print, you have no idea if it's Melissa Gish or somebody else who's doing that impression. So we're estimating a system-wide consensus-based likelihood ratio, not one for any particular examiner. Now, to really address your question, how you do this case work, ongoing stuff, but the idea is we use six or so image pairs with known likelihood ratios from our study as benchmarks. And you would place your current image pair relative to these six benchmarks and decide relative to these six sort of fiduciary benchmark, whatever comparisons, how much support is there for the same source proposition? If it's a lot, you move it here. If it's not a lot, you do it here. It's literally you drag the images on the screen. And if you'd like to be a subject and help us with this data collection, you shoot the QR code this afternoon and I'll sign you up. <laughs> so it could look something like this, right? So you've got these six kind of calibrator pairs and you go, all right, so the latent in this case, given the quality matches more this one in the middle and not these other ones. But the number of minutia matches maybe more closely to that one. And the overall surface area might be closer to this pair. So you're trying to gauge in these calibrator pairs where your latent in this case sort of falls on maybe quantity, quality, specificity, complexity, surface area, a number of probably complex parameters. Or maybe use a tool like LQ metrics. And so you get a, an overall score for the latent print. Or you combine that with number of minutia. And so now we've got two pair parameters. We find a way to calibrate the case pair that we both agree are an ID, which kind of calibrator that falls on, right? Yep. And once we do that, we can then generate a score for that. Yep. So let's say we get a score of 10,000 for that pair. What's the report look like now? I will answer that question, but let me back up and just make sure that everyone understands that First, Glenn is exactly right how it might work. And you could certainly use these other tools to, to add more information. And I want to point out that when you make an ID right now, you are doing the exact same thing. You are instead referencing all of the other comparisons that you've ever made in your life and saying, is it in that category of things I've called an ID? If it is, I'll say ID. If it's not in that category of things I've called ID in the past, then I'll call it inclusive or something else. So you already do this process. It's just happening naturally and in your mind. Here, we're just putting it explicitly on the screen. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really very good point. Thank you for making that. Okay, so now that we agree it's this pair and that for that pair is a likelihood ratio of 10,000, what's the report look like? So I was actually on the reporting and testimony subcommittee for the DNA. And so I, I got into the weeds for the reports for, for DNA as well. There is a challenge that you need to educate your end user mm -hmm. for what a likelihood ratio is. And hopefully by the end of today, you've had a more, a better understanding of what a likelihood ratio is. It could be some um, boilerplate language and examples, maybe even examples of what 10,000 likelihood ratio kind of means 
you know, flipping coins or whatever that might be. So something that they could relate to or go, oh, I, I go to Vegas. I, I know what a, a flush is. <laughs> okay. So something that can make that a relatable number. Yeah. Here's the dirty secret. People are terrible at interpreting likelihood ratios. People are absolutely <laughs> terrible at it. And, and although I presented this rosy picture about how you use this chain of likelihood ratios and prior odds and posterior odds and whatever, people are terrible at it. The good news is that generally tend to be in the right direction and they tend to underestimate the strength of the evidence. So that might be uh, good in the sense that it favors the defense if you think that's a good thing. Sure. In a liberal democracy, we're probably okay with that. But the report simply, but the benefit of likelihood ratios is that, and, and fingerprints is starting to do this, but a likelihood ratio explicitly lays out both alternative worlds, both alternative hypotheses. It was this guy or it was somebody else, or it was this guy or his brother. And those could give you different numbers. Yeah. And so it, at least in the mind of the juror, you're reminding them that this other alternative exists. You're not giving them the answer. All right, so let, let me get more specific. Would the report say, latent print one compared against this individual, the following hypotheses were considered. It was either made by this person or some other random person, blah, 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 blah. Those are the two hypotheses considered. An identification was made at latent print one to the right index finger of this person, or does it have that identification? Then, and here's an associated weight of evidence, a likelihood ratio, plus the identification word, or no identification word at all, simply the observations between observed correspondence between the latent print and the right index finger of this proposed individual provided a likelihood ratio of the following. So ID, just the likelihood ratio, or ID plus here's the number associated with that identification. Getting very specific. So... One of the real benefits of working the last three years in this DNA group is really the wonderful opportunity to work with Tasha Shampo, who is part of our working group, and Glenn knows. She's the wife of Christoph Shampo, if you know that name, and she's a DNA analyst in Switzerland and very knowledgeable. Yeah, so she convinced me of many things throughout this three-year period, and and one is that really, in the end, the likelihood ratio lives by itself. Like she's opposed to even presenting a single verbal equivalent, let alone the whole scale. Sure. She says, this is the number and the number represents everything you need to know there. And I'm inclined to agree with her. I think that there is a fair amount of, of translation into the American judicial system because of our, so there maybe needs some tweaks that, that we need to do. I, I feel like if there's one problem with the likelihood ratio approach, it's that there is this this knowledge gap that can't really be remedied through explaining to the jury how to use this because that's jury instruction and the judge typically won't allow that so i admit there is a there is a barrier to the adoption of likelihood ratios on the other hand i think they are appropriately giving the strength of that of the the support offered by those observations tasha doesn't even like to say evidence cuz evidence is the court. We're making observations. So I try to use that language, observations. So that, I think, is the strength of likelihood ratios. But another barrier is that helping people understand them. And part of that is a report writing. So the, I mean, typically when in discussing likelihood ratios and the scores that come out of those, it's typically helpful 
to give a this range of numbers has has this kind of general meaning because if you just say 27 the jury's gonna look at you and go i don't know what 27 means i, I need to have a context of where this fits is 27 big is 27 small right. Right. i mean yes and it then just by extension when when you have these categories and describing what what this range of values means what just we as humans tend to do we tend to to label things and abbreviate things to make it just easier to discuss you can't just recite the entire paragraph of the definition of this range of values you you give it a label and call it a thing and then that's the shorthand that you use in the discussion and then that range of values then has the label of identification and then now we're back to having identification that's just part of the conclusion that's reported from the likelihood ratio because it fits into this into this binned range of values yeah so helping people understand numbers is hard numbers are hard words are worse but numbers are hard <laughs> so you probably don't mean to the exclusion of others all others when you say identification and yet your consumers do believe that or the bulk of them do or may or may so at least when I present a number, it, it provokes a conversation among the jury. Like, what does this mean? When you say identification, everyone knows or thinks they know what identification means. And so there isn't that conversation. So at least giving them the number forces them to think about how to deal with it as opposed to just assuming, oh, he said identify, he's the guy, I'm good to go. All right, so I, I I think I understand again. It's the practice is the practicality. I want to see how like what would this look like in practice? We make this identification. It's verified. It's and instead of in the report using the word identification, what we say is the observations provided extremely strong support for the proposition that latent print one and the right index finger of Jones are from the same source. This equated to a likelihood ratio of 10,000, meaning it's 10,000 times more likely for these observations if to observe these, to, to make these observations if they are from the same source than some other random person. And then that's the number. I never say identification anywhere. I mean, that could be in the notes, but it's not in the report. That's the likelihood ratio. That's why I go to court. And that's what I express to the jurors. That's, that's what you're seeing right now. It's debatable on the verbal part of that extremely strong support. So I had the exact same conversation with David Kay. For those of you who know David Kay, he's like the, the godfather of statistical approaches to forensics and Al Stern as well. And I asked him the same question because obviously it's the question. And and they're not going to give any more satisfying answer than, or they didn't give me that satisfying answer. And I'll, I will not give you a satisfying <laughs> answer either. Other than I think, when you're talking to a detective using this approach, what you would explain is that this represents a belief change. So back to our bank robbery example. So if you have a suspect that the teller said had brown hair and green eyes, it's about 5% of the population, translates to a likely ratio of 20. So does this mean that the cops should just basically arrest the first person they see who has brown hair and green eyes? No, of course not, because the 20 is small relative to the fact that this could be any random person. But if you catch a suspect who's running away from the bank with money in his hands, and he happens to have brown hair and green eyes, then that's meaningful information. So that value of 20 can have different meanings depending on the context. And that's why it exists only as a belief change, your change in beliefs. It doesn't exist by itself. 
all it does is change a belief. So maybe that's the best definition or explanation of likelihood ratio is that it's a number that doesn't exist by itself. It's a change in beliefs. So I was going to open things up for our audience in the last few minutes that we yeah. have for any other questions that so that we might have for for panel the panel especially Tom, yeah. So just to restate for everyone else and for our recording the question, kind of multiple pieces there. One is is related to the these six sample images that we're comparing the latent print to, and I think that might just be a a initial proposal where it may end up going in a different direction where it's not just six. But then the, well, the comparison of the comparison at hand to these other comparisons that are used as proxies. Calibrate. Sure. That that might take on multiple different dimensions. Then how is that all then translated into the report? So I do a halfway decent job of, re of restating that? Okay. Yeah. So one of the challenges with this, what we're calling the benchmark, approach to generating like likelihood ratios for casework, which I know you guys want. And I'm telling you that that would be awesome if it works out, but that is, these are early days for that. When we create the likelihood ratio initially for those six benchmark comparisons, we are explicitly relying on variation among examiners to do that. So the fact that 30 examiners ID'd it, a third said inconclusive and a third said exclusion, not everyone agreed. And we're explicitly modeling that to say, hey, that's kind of a sketchy print. If, if you have that much variation, then the strength of support is not very great for that. And your the, the, how you communicate that is might differ. You could use a likelihood ratio. You could say support for common source or whatever. But it, we're, we're explicitly modeling that variation. Examiners are going to differ. They're also going to differ in terms of the, the if we can validate this benchmark likelihood ratio approach. So there is not going to be a single number that comes out of even a benchmark approach. It turns out even in DNA, there isn't a single number, even though they report a number. It turns out there's a range of numbers and they pick off the lowest of the highest density region or whatever. But so there is no number, it's, but it's a number. And from that perspective, it has all the advantages of a number. We know what 20 means. Like we don't have to debate about, we, we can debate about what our identification means, but we know what 20 means, it's 20. There are dangers in terms of what's called the expected value fallacy, hmm. that if you say a likelihood ratio is 100,000 and there was only 10,000 people that could have touched this object, therefore it has to be this guy, that's called the expected value fallacy and that's not a true statement. Those two things have nothing to do with each other. So yeah, there's a there's a, a number of complexities with likelihood ratios. What I hear her asking, and I mean, please nod her thumbs up if I'm if I'm on point, is that it almost sounds like there's a lot of complex information that we're taking, and we're doing the same thing here, just different. We're we're now binning it into a number bin, and we're losing a bunch of more complex information by giving it just a number. It's the the mystique of a number. Now we have a number, but we still lost a lot of complex information. Yeah, so I don't know how many of you were a fan of Top Gear when it was on or the new <laughs> Grand Tour. I don't know if the Grand Tour is still in production or I don't know, maybe COVID hit it. But one of the central features of Top Gear was they had a leaderboard yeah. that, that had celebrities run around this track on a stupid car, like a Toyota Tercel or something or their equivalent. And they did lap times. And, and this there was a big reveal at the end of the show about, where this person would fall relative to all the other peers. And you could do the same thing with your comparisons. Just imagine every time you do a comparison, you print out a little snapshot of it 
and you tape it to your wall and you decide, okay, well, this was the, 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 the most, the easiest comparison I ever did, it'll go at the top. And then figure out every time you have a new comparison, you, you create this leaderboard. And then the, the value you communicate to your, to your detective is, well, I'm not going to tell you what I thought. I'm just going to tell you that it ranked in the top 20% of all comparisons I've ever done in terms of support for common source. You could create your own likelihood ratio just by doing this leaderboard approach. Okay. Heather from Hayward, California is asking a couple of different questions. The first question is how do we trust the model since we can effectively get different numbers from it? All right, so the, right, so I, I'm gonna, I think I know what she's asking. And, and like you already said about like DNA, I mean, there are plenty of DNA models and they don't produce all the same numbers. So how do we go into court with a model, even if we validate it in-house and yet someone else looking at the same print, perhaps even using the same model could generate potentially a different number off of the same pair of images? And I mean, I didn't read the question, but it sounds like something else I've been thinking of is where as we then try to apply the comparison under review to these benchmark images that we're, we're adding in subjectivity where with, with that could then increase the variation between how examiners, different examiners would treat this comparison pair. Yeah, so I thought the question was going to be, why does Tom hate us? <laughs> that was definitely um, I'm trying to help, so this is a better so, question. So there's always going to be subjectivity and variability. So if you sent this, this imprint to a different lab, you would probably get a different result. You might get a different result. So I don't know. We can only try to reduce subjectivity and, and variability, but we're not going to get rid of it. I'm right up here. I got the pepperoni, please. The large pepperoni. No, I have no idea. I'm, I, I don't <laughs> So I don't know that I can actually directly address that. We should probably explain for those who are listening <laughs> that a Domino's delivery person just walked in the room and looking around for someone for pizza. And uh, I was going to steal one of those pizzas. <laughs> So understood, and that's I think that's a that's definitely a goal is reducing that potential variability, and and I think it sounds like some of the concerns of of would this process effectively do that, and but I think the, the it sounds like at this point you you're ready to then move forward to this next step of trying to to put in this method, test it out, pilot it to see how it responds, and at that point then we could then have a better idea of. The variability that's been associated from the pilot. There are so one of the benefits of the benchmark likelihood ratios is that there are six benchmark images plus a seventh casework, and you're in charge of moving all seven images around. For six of these, we know, and and in our testing for the seventh, we also know because it's sort of casework, but we're drawing it from our database, so it has an unlikelihood ratio. We know the actual answers to where the correct placement of all seven of these is. And if so we can actually measure if they deviate, if your placement of them on the screen deviates from where we actually know. So in some sense, the system is self, not calibrating, but it's self-monitoring in the sense that if you place these six benchmarks in the wrong position relative to their known values, we already know we're not gonna get a good answer. We can just say, 
give up. This isn't going to work for you. Well, and then the 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 six ones that you've already know from the existing research is based on the uh, the decisions from that group of examiners that participated in like the black box study. Yep. And if you're piloting it for like LAPD, that's a completely different set of people that are going to that. It's almost like you have to use the same group of of people as the input data on the ground truth samples as then the, the actual pilot study application in the casework. Yep. So yes, we're absolutely any reference database is a function of the stimuli you've used yeah. and the people who did the, the testing. So LAPD could create their own black box model or their own, they could they could generate their own benchmarks and agree that this is a really clear, convincing impression and, and this is not. And and do it that way. Black box studies are kind of complex to run. Sure. The first one was you know, million dollars and 120 examiners, something like that. All right. Well, uh, we're, we're we're running out of time. We we'll probably keep going. We are out of time. Out of time. <laughs> so we're going to wrap things up. And thank you guys all for sticking around. And thank you, Tom, very yeah, much thank for you. joining us. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the California Division for having us here this week. All right, uh, so that was our discussion with uh, with Tom Busey and very interesting paper. Uh, you can kind of hear Glenn and I had some thoughts on it. We're trying to pull apart things that we thought it would work well and things that we still had some reservations about. But again, as with all of Tom's stuff, just always been so excited that that he's chosen our field to get into. Right, uh, from from his background, yeah. you know, who who else? There's no one else that would have that would do so much for our field. And uh, you really appreciate his involvement over the past, how uh, what, 20 years probably that he's been uh, doing this? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, That's about right. And uh, we're, we're very lucky to have someone like him who yeah. thinks like this from the outside, but still tries to understand the forensic science problem, but by bringing these statistics. And I mean, I thought what he said about the, the model was great, you know? Underlying assumptions, it's something, it's something that can be measured and expressed, but has you know, lots of these little underlying assumptions that, you know, it's just part of the limitation of this process, but it's something. Right. And it'll be interesting to see how this moves forward in relation to kind of multiple other paths that other researchers are on as well. Sure. All right. Well, um, as always, if you have any follow-up questions for us, you know, please send us emails, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Our website is doublelooppodcast.com and has a merchandise store. You can buy t-shirts and it helps support us that way uh, or through the Patreon site that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And remember that the opinions expressed on this show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And we will close out and uh, hope to see you guys at a conference here real soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.